I'm Helen Marshall, and this is the Diary of a CLO. I hope no one's listening, but if you are, definitely share it. In this episode, I'm joined by Nick Holmes, who is the VP of Employee Experience at Fisherback Health. If you're interested in how to create meaningful, well-connected workplaces, then listen up. Nick shares what you need to be thinking about with some really practical, thought-provoking and valuable insights. Enjoy. Nick, hi, and welcome to Diary of a CLO. I'm so pleased that you're joining me today. How are you doing? Hey, Helen. Yeah, I'm I'm so good. Yeah, really, really good. Thank you so much for having me on. This is going to be a blast. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation because I know you, like me, I think like to think differently about the world of work and the opportunities that I suppose we can provide to people. Before we dig into what I know will be the really juicy stuff, can you tell me a little bit about your experience and I guess what drives you and how you've got to where you are today? Yeah, oh, such a cool question. My journey really starts at university where I wanted to break the TV industry and be the next Dermot O'Leary. And the only place that did that was Middlesbrough. So I'll fast forward quite quickly because that was obviously a time ago. Anyway, Middlesbrough is my adopted like, third or fourth home. Love it. Then wanted to be an actor. Went to LA straight out of university to be like, this is where everyone goes to be an actor. So it must work out. Was there for about four months, ran out of cash really quickly. I was like, why haven't I broken the industry? How nuts is that? I thought it'd be really easy. Then someone told me like a million people go there every year. Came back to London, had about five jobs to like live in London, work in London. One of them was selling photos, that really annoying person at London Aquarium that takes a picture of you and then sells it to you at the end. But I was really good at it, like selling stuff. And I couldn't really figure out why. And it must be the acting thing. So I told my boss at the time, I was like, I'm hitting all these numbers. Let me teach people how to sell by acting. I never run a training, I was 21. I never run a training session before in my life. So I made a load of crap up, right? I got I got about 40 chairs right in front of the shark tanks in London Aquarium. I was like, needs to be theatrical and theater. I need like analogies everywhere I look. I played like loads of clips of Muhammad Ali. I was like pulling out Wolf of Wall Street quotes and all this kind of stuff. But for some reason, like it worked and we started to, you know, increase sales on the sales floor. And then from there, my career sort of spiraled. I actually led retail stores, 40 plus people at the age of 21. So thrusted into leadership very quickly, very early. And then from there, my career sort of snowballed, became the head of training for Europe and the Middle East, gave up the acting stuff. I then sort of did my CIPD courses, wanted to get understanding the underskin of the whole people section. I then became global head of L&D for a big global organization that went through a lot of acquisitions, which was super fun. I then was like, I want to own the whole thing. So I, was, I moved to be the head of HR at a B2B tech company in Manchester, steered them through COVID, left to then sort of reignite the passion of how you can change behavior through people and like see the glow in people's eyes. So moving from like traditional HR, where it was all about restructural design, redundancy, and go, oh God, I want the joy to come back into the world. So then I moved to where I'm at now, which is Fisherback Health. And at the time I joined as the global head of professional development. And I was like, to the team, the board at the time, I was like, yeah, this is gonna change. So within about six months of me joining there, I rebranded the whole department to career experience. So now I'm the global head of career experience. And I look after how the organization thinks and feels when they log on in the morning, when they shut down. We have a, an amazing team, built and scaled a team, seven of us who are then here on this planet to change the way we work. So for me personally, I am literally dedicated and driven to change the way the world works. That really kicked on for me about three and a half years ago when a small human came into my life, my daughter. So my journey is basically right. She's going to enter work in like 18 years, right? Maybe a little bit less. I've got about that much time to change this thing. 
So ever since then, it's like, how do I change it on a daily basis? And we're doing some very fun stuff in the business. And yeah, get to work with amazing partners like you guys at Thrive and speak to really cool humans like you, Helen. That's kind of a whistle-stop tool. <laughs> well, I mean, so much to dig into there. Like two things that really stand out to me are you bringing it back to putting joy back into whatever it is that you're doing and and re-energizing people because I think that like it certainly rings true in my experience of HR in previous organizations that I've worked for that it is very much focused on process procedure doing things in a certain way very kind of standardized and no real focus on the end user the people at the end end of the whatever it is that you're doing so I love that idea of like bringing the energy back into it and then the second thing in terms of changing the world for the better for future generations because like as a parent myself it's something that weighs on your mind isn't it what's our children's experience of the world going to be like and how can we make an impact to better what that experience is going to be ultimately yeah, so right, right. So when you walk in, like in 1820, like even now, people are walking into organizations and organizations, whilst maybe well intended, are doing things very badly, forcing people back into the office, they're autonomous adults, doing things like exiting people within 90 days just because it's easy to. But even when you work, it's like thrust into the deep end corner, and you'll figure it out. Or even just the relationships are not setting them up for success at all. When I work is the thing you do most after sleep in your life, right? You sleep and you work. That is the most thing. That is the biggest thing that we spend our time and our energy on. If we don't start changing it, injecting joy back into it, making it more inclusive, more fulfilling. And that's why the whole the whole concept and the craft is around experiences. Because the data suggests, right, I ran this, I did a talk a, um, a few months ago. It was all about how we can dive into the experience economy of work. And when we get material things, like gifts, right? This is a good example. When we get like phones and tablets, the hit is so minimal, right? It lasts really great. And then I want the next thing. But actually, if we have experiences, so we go skydiving or we go to spend time with a loved one, that endorphin hit lasts so much longer. And you're able to then look back and reflect. And that's where joy comes from. So you get high levels of joy through experiences than you do through material things. And work is the same, right? So yes, pay and bonus and remuneration is important, but you always want more. There'll never be a point where you want no, stop, want to say, no, you'll be paying me too much. Thank you very much. But it's like how you can craft and the role of L&D is what we're talking about. It has to evolve and people has to change and evolve to create more experiences of work. Otherwise, people will just become more depressed, more hits, leave quicker and sooner. And it impacts their family, their wellness, their entire life. So people don't realize how much impact that people in our roles, in our profession can have on people's lives. Yeah, I mean, that's such an important part of what we do, like that impact of whatever we're creating on the end user. But then from the other side of that for me is the actual business impact of investing in people and allowing people to feel psychologically safe, to to be able to feel and be creative to therefore innovate more effectively. Ultimately, what you'll see as a result of creating that space is an impact on the service or the product system at the end of the day as well, because people feel like they can bring their best self to the table as well. So not only is it beneficial from a people perspective for the well-being of an individual, but also from a business perspective to be able to create something really good at the end of the day. Yeah, 100%. The correlation between employee experience and customer experience is undisputed. If your people love what they do, they're going to tell their clients, their customers that they love what they do. And that's going to come through the passion in the work. And it's the same. It doesn't matter if you're an account services director or if you're in tech, IT, coding, a software developer. If you put love and passion because the environment you're working in is conducive to growth, yes, there's going to be challenges. There's going to be failure. Wonderful. But ultimately, if you're passionate about that, 
then your craft just accelerates and your relationships accelerate externally. And even, even when it comes to the point where you move organizations, you look back so fondly, right? So it's all these things are connected. And it's, it's how in our role we can shape that experience or in that environment so people are feeling that love feeling that joy because there's so much like to your point you said earlier hr is so siloed right now right you've got lnd in one corner talent acquisition in one corner hr business partners want an ops in another and the ulrich model ulrich plus is not fit for how we're going to be leading teams and organizations in the future it's not strategic enough it's not agile enough and it's not focused on enough so yeah fascinating i think for me when i hear the phrase lnd as we know it is dead which i've heard kind of a few different people say and this isn't even recently this is going back a couple of years but i really think we're at that point where and this is it putting a positive spin on that kind of death of lnd because we're seeing that kind of shift from L&D being, and, and even HR being kind of order takers and deliverers of information to actually being the change makers within organizations. What's your interpretation of that? Because you, you've just touched on it there in terms of that siloed approach. Is that something you're seeing changing? Is it something you do try and do differently? Yeah, it definitely is. I, so it's fact, I was having a conversation the other day. I think we are as a function, people function L&D, HR. We're not disruptors. We wait for the disruption to happen and then we're behind it and adjust. And AI is a perfect example of this, right? Everyone's like, AI is going to be great. And they're waiting for that to happen and then use it. Like the function is not disrupting the world of work. They're waiting for disruption to happen and then adjusting as a result of it. It's always acting like that. You're always playing catch up. Like people are still talking, like we spoke about, but people are still talking about hybrid working three years on. Right. And it's like, we've done that. We've dealt with that. I was at a LinkedIn conference a few months ago where they released their skills report. And it's like, these are the same skills we've been talking about for like the last five years. Like you're waiting for disruption to happen to you. You're not disrupting yourself. So it's going to take a few industry leaders to go right now. We need to change all this. We need to, like you mentioned like LD is dead. I think it's more about revolution, right? It's not losing some of the cool stuff that it has worked on in the past and the relationship we've built. It's about revolutionizing what it can be and what a people role in the organization should be. So for me, if you take the theme of experience, I think, People at the moment, you've got all these different pockets, ops, HR, L&D, talent. It's going to break into two zones, right? You've got the people operational analytical data side, and they are people who are data wizards, understand technology, using it to revolutionize how people are workflow and the workflow through the organization. ER sits there, right? So you've got employment law specialists and experts that sit under the operational. The next side is the joy of work. And these are people who are experienced specialists. And that's L&D, that's talent, all coming together to create a people experience role. Because the whole, my issue has always been with L&D is that they, by definition, you're pigeonholing yourself. You're saying you're just the people who are into learning and that's compliance, maybe a bit of onboarding, maybe a bit of performance and making sure people are going through those skill learning and education, closing the skill gaps. Yes, everything needs to be tied into organizational objectives, but so does everything else. It's not, it's not special. It's not doing anything that's going to move the needle. But actually, if you can take the skills that L&D has, take the skills that acquisition has, and you start to craft roles where instead of being an expert in a very niche area, you start to become incredibly well-skilled across the entire employee life cycle. And we need more of these individuals because learning doesn't and shouldn't and never has done happen in one specific team. It happens across every role, across every organization, and people organically do it. What you've got to do is set the environment up so people can go out and grab their own content when they want it and need it. But as a, as a people experience specialist, you can tie that into incredible partnering work and talent of the future work and EVP work. It's these two areas that need to start defining themselves. And then we need to start around how do we bring more diversity into those areas? Because... Let's be honest, people in HR 
are very traditionalist at the moment. We're not bringing people into the HR function from tech or marketing or sales. In L&D, a little bit, yeah. But actually, in the whole HR, you are, you are seeing traditional coordinators go to advisors, go to partners and HR heads. We're not bringing enough diversity and roles and individuals into the function. So all of these things sort of joined up. I mean, it's that like I am fully for this and I'm nodding my head in agreement as, as, as you're talking. But I suppose on a very practical level, for a lot of organizations, making that shift is quite revolutionary, like you mentioned. Like what on a on a practical level do you have any advice how you would start to instigate that kind of more forward thinking approach to people experience the first thing is mapping out your employee experience strategy and the way you do that is very simple there's a starting a launch pad for every single hr professional no matter if you're standalone or a team of 100 that you can start from and it's a venn diagram so it's three bubbles the the first bubble is employee voice to build an employee experience strategy you've got to understand what your people want from your workplace and this is unique everywhere. This is why I laugh my head off when I scroll through LinkedIn and I see the same frameworks and the same seven steps and the same, right? Because it's like you can't pick a cookie cutter approach and slap it in every organization. It just doesn't work. Your people are different. They're from different backgrounds and different skills. So employee voice is the first one. You can do that immediately tomorrow. You don't have to have an engagement survey platform software to go and do that. You could just build a Microsoft, right? Find out what the 10 most important questions are. Go and get voice, go and get feedback from your business. What do they want from the workplace? What's not working? What is working? And what do they see the workplace look in the future? The second bubble is your organizational purpose. What are you on this planet to do? And it's got to be compelling, aspirational, but also realistic, right? So for us, we're all about better health. How do we make better health happen? How do we make connections across the healthcare industry to make better healthcare outcomes for patients to save lives, to make people live longer, right? Awesome. That's very clear for us. And the final piece is where does the workplace go? Where does the industry move to in the next three, five, 10 years? It's got future of work. And slap bang in the middle of those three bubbles is where you start crafting. So you use employee voice, those two things, you prioritize three things and you start acting. You start acting as owners of the employee experience strategy. And when you know where you're starting, you can then go, what roles do we need to fill those? So we need a talent experience specialist, someone who's going to go and get us brilliant people, but they also understand the learning needs so they can deliver L&D and training at the same time. They're so interconnected, the roles, and we've, we've made them. And over time, over years, we've pushed these roles into corners of a room. And it's time we push them back in, smush them back together, and give people more skill and more opportunity and more exposure. So what we've had is years upon years of talent acquisition experts only doing acquisition and a bit of onboarding, or years and years of L&D experts only doing training and development, not doing acquisition. But in smaller organizations, the HRBP does all of that. So you think, actually, these are roles are starting to come through, but you dial up and dial down, oh, we've got a big learning need here, who's got a passion for learning, who wants to give you some education and support, go and work with that vendor to go and deliver that. Do you know what I mean? So start with the strategy, design the roles that go with that, and just get going. Like, we overthink everything, but 70% is actually fine. So it's just start. It's that idea of, like, you know, even if it doesn't work out the way that you expected it to, at least you're starting with the right intentions, and you can pivot and change direction and experiment a little bit. You're not going to get it right first time, every time. But yeah, it's better to get something started and start making waves, rather than sitting back and waiting for a perfect moment that, you know, might not ever really materialise. No, exactly. The biggest thing you can do is just go consistently get feedback, be a magnet. Just say like, is this working for you? No, cool, let's work on that. We wait, we wait and we wait and we're so scared of critique 
in our industry, we're so scared of people telling us what's not right. It's actually the most beautiful thing when someone says, you could do it differently. We've implemented a really simple feedback culture, which is a one plus one. One thing that's working, one thing that's not. And then we use that plus one all the time. So it's like these little habits, we call these like drum beats, right? So drum beats, not lightning bolts, is what changes organizations and what changes cultures. Big flashy things doesn't change your culture. It's how you show up every single day. So if you've got a purpose, which is, do you know what? I'm listening to this. Yeah, we can do this differently. You just start tomorrow and immediately and every single action you do, you'll look back and be like, holy shit, we've done so much in like six months. And it's the same for us. Like January 2022, none of this existed. We now have four global platforms. You guys are one of those. We have an entire CXP team. Attrition, voluntary attrition is halved. It's gone from 26% to 13% in less than 12 months. So these things... Once you start and when you're driven by purpose, not politics, and I'm very deliberate when I say that, like when you're driven by purpose, not politics, anything can change in your organization. No matter if you're one voice shouting very loudly or lots of voices murmuring, like you can change your business. Well done on those stats as well, because, uh, you know, in, that's in such a short space of time too. So it just shows you how effective those strategies are being within Fisher work specifically. I'm thinking from like organizations that we work with, public sector organizations specifically, that it becomes much more difficult to start to make changes like this because of the complexity of the organization, which is upsetting in a way that you can't start to make this change immediately within organizations like that because of that complex structure and service delivery. It's it's a shame because I think there's a lot of good people working specifically in the public sector, for example, that want to make change, but are faced with a lot of barriers when they come up against actually doing the, the thing that they need to doing. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I know I'm lucky, right? Working in private sector means you can fly and you can all risks relatively less tape around you. But I also think this is about a mindset shift though, because it's all I've ever heard about public sector working too. So it's like, it's this case of saying every single part of really good friends who are working in ND and public sector, and like everything's the same, but there is scope to change. There is always a controllable in your hands where you just start small, whether it's a name change, like moving, shifting the words from mandatory learning into essential learning or must have, or, you know, little tweaks in your lexicon, little tweaks in your approach and your behaviors can start to make a change. Right. And so instead of always going down there, because what happens is when we're stuck in a cycle of cynicism, right, it's, it becomes incredibly hard to get out of that. So it's like, you can't change, won't change, super fixed minds are very, very difficult. And yes, barriers remain and push sometimes big, heavy boulders need to be pushed up large hills. But what are the boulders you can flick down and push down? What haven't you thought of yet? What could you do? It's about injecting a new energy. Like if you're in control of your team, you can change the way your team works, right? That's in your power, probably. There's more stuff in your control. If you're a learning leader and working in public sector, change the way you work, your behaviors. How do you role model a behavior to actually leaders start to pay attention to what you're doing? How do you shift the narrative in your conversations that you're having from here's what we did to here's what we're going to do and here's how it's going to change the life of our patients or of our customers in our, in our districts and our council, whatever that is. Bring it back to those three bubbles. Because ultimately, if you're talking about purpose and you're listening to your people and you're driving the future of work, any action you make is going to improve the organisation. Yeah, great advice. I did want to talk to you a little bit around, I know you touched on this previously, about how the conversation around hybrid work or remote work has maybe it's been and gone, like people need to move on and kind of get on with their lives. But it's still a very much in focus for a lot of businesses at the moment, like how they bring people back into offices or how they adapt to what that new way of working looks like. And... I suppose I hear a lot of conversations at the moment 
that potentially are driven, I'm going to get political, are driven by the government in terms of Generation Z are feeling a sense of entitlement for wanting to work remotely, which I you know, completely disagree with. But in the conversations I'm, cross-generational conversations I'm having, finding that that want and need to be able to work remotely or to have the option to work in a hybrid way is very much there across generations. So I feel like Gen Z maybe are being a little bit of a scapegoat there for, for the government. What's your take on hybrid and remote work and how are you approaching that at Mishawak? Yeah, look, so, I mean, as we know, three years ago, things changed pretty drastically in all of our lives. And what happened was we recalibrated what was important to ourselves. But also, more so, we were given time in a very different way. So where time was adjusted, where I was commuting to an office by the driving, cycling, or getting the train or whatever, it changed uh, starting a bit earlier, having breakfast with my child that maybe I didn't have before, that's tweaked. And when you work in a certain way, you have a habit that gets built up and formed. Now, the problem we're into now is organizations say, now I need you to break that habit you've built over two years and I want you back in, and I'm going to use this word mandate, you back in one or two days a week. And what's very difficult when you talk to an autonomous adult about mandating is you're taking away choice. And the minute you take choice away from a human and especially an adult human, they start to immediately repel that right whilst you obey or you go through it in the end and yes there are loads of benefits to coming in the office and I'll talk to those in a second but the minute you remove choice from someone you're immediately putting yourself as a business on foot what we need to do better of and this is goes across all generations because yes Gen Z, yes absolutely but also boomers who are still in the workforce and beyond actually they like getting a bit of their time back and they like not having to go in all the time so what we need to do is recalibrate the purpose for getting together there's no point you mandating coming in every Wednesday and Thursday when there's not enough meeting rooms in your office and everyone's on teams. What's the point? A few people I've spoken to have got these in, have invested in brand new office spaces, beautiful, not mandating people back and it's empty. Other places, rubbish places, mandating people back. And yeah, it's busy on Thursday because everyone's forced to come in on Thursday. There is a very sweet spot here where we don't have to mandate, but we use empowerment in a much stronger way within our organizations and accountability, which says as a leader, I'm empowered to say, We've got a pitch coming. I'd love to get people together to build some relationships. And as an employer, you're empowered to say, today, I've got some life admin. I would love to come in, but I think I'll be a bit of a mess and I'll be in next week. So it's this empowerment piece that really starts to, needs to start to come into our organizations. Now, when it comes to the physical space, I'm just entering this now in our teams and we, we're just taking over this. So it's a really exciting time for us. But how do you design an environment where the minute you walk in, it's an experience. I go back to that experience piece, right? And it draws me in. It makes me want to come back. Like there can be nothing worse of forcing people back in a day or two days a week to a space that's uninspiring and a zone or environment that isn't useful for me to be productive. We know we're more productive at home because we work longer because we don't have commute times, right? So it goes back to the question of do we mandate? No. Do we provide purpose? Yes. And can we recraft the experience of our offices? 100%. There's a role here that we are changing. So we have an office manager role. That is completely being is being changed and reinvented to our workplace experience lead. Their role is to be a beacon of culture, but do things like every Monday sending out recommendations of where to go for lunch in the local area, or letting people know when senior leaders arrive, when they're coming, who they are, doing blitzes, doing more interactivity. We have a site leader network in all of our sites as well, whose role it is just to be beacons of culture and bring people together. There's no mandate in our organization, but we want to see people return, but when it's right for them, not just because it suits us and we're paying rents. Like it's got to be purposeful. And what does that good experience look like to you then? Obviously you just mentioned that role of workplace experience lead. What is your vision then for a good experience? Is it about a place that people come to connect with each other and 
build relationships rather than actually sit down at a desk and do something? Or how do, how is that balance in your head? The workplace is a zonal environment. So you walk in, and this is what beautiful will probably look like and where we're trying to take our spaces. You walk in and you're greeted as a host. So you're walking like you're almost you're shown to your seat like a theatre experience. And that person's warm and friendly and vibrant and can help introduce you to people maybe you've never met before. That's great. It puts me at ease from minute one. Then the location I'm working in is aspirational. There's things around it where I can go and walk to. There's great places. There's lunch around the corner. There's really cool, if you're into sort of social scene, bars, restaurants, you know, that kind of thing. So no matter what city that is or town that is, that is available within a few steps. But when we come to the zone of the space, we're here for learning, right? Learning zones, really nice setup with hybrid tech. There's productivity zones, phone booths, where you can jump away. If you've got that call, you can jump away. Meeting rooms are open and airy and spacious. And there's abundance of those to reworking your space to make sure that happens. And probably the most important thing for me, there's a wellness zone, right? Where health is priority, where you can go and just switch off for a minute. Because what's not drawing people back is saying, well, I've got such a better setup at home than I do in the office. So what is the pull? You're making me pay higher fees than I ever before. Cost of living is going through the roof. I'm just having to remortgage and I'm paying an extra £200 a month and you're asking me to pay another £200 a month to go into an office that isn't any good. Like organizations are not thinking it through. Decisions are being made in silos. And instead of saying, we're going to reinvest into the space and we're going to give you a real cool purpose to come in and work here. We're just going, no, you're forced in, kick, shoe. Oh, by the way, proximity bias is a massive thing. So we're not telling you this, but if I'm your boss and you're in, you're probably going to get promoted more, but we're not going to tell everyone that because it's part of our unconscious. But do you know what I mean? So all of this is so, so not lined up that actually we can reset. And again, goes back to my point, the people experience while that function is there to reset all of it which is really key. That idea of really crafting the space in which people are going to come into is, well, I think it can really kind of revolutionise the way that people approach work and feel excited about what they're doing and what they're contributing to and having it has that impact on an individual and how they then interact with other people within that as well. And it's something that I'm definitely seeing spoken about a lot more, but definitely not at the pace at which it needs to happen. Like you say, it's more of that kind of, we're paying huge amounts of rent on this office building in central London. You need to come back in to justify us paying that rent. And that's just not, it's not, as you say, putting the user first. You know, that's where it, everything falls down. Because going back right to the beginning of what you were saying, you have to get the feedback. You have to be speaking to your end users consistently to know whether you're doing something in the right way or not yeah exactly and it goes back to the point of we're waiting for disruption to happen to us rather than disrupting the workspace we're waiting to tell people oh we're not getting enough people in now we're going to mandate rather than going actually if we disrupted this we listen what they wanted would we see people come back organically yes of course you would and then you build the story and then you tell better stories and tell people how great this is and then you start organically seeing that growth again you just touched on proximity bias there um, very briefly and i think it is a real problem that isn't really being spoken about as much as it needs to be in terms of what that physical presence in an office means to people's careers and what you might potentially be cut off from by not being physically able maybe to come into an office and managers I think have to have a real consciousness of that and make the effort to build relationships virtually in the same way as they are doing physically and make sure it's an equitable experience their whole team or across the organization yeah, 100%. Like the unconscious biases of leaders is what is probably one of the biggest pitfalls of organizations, right? Because it's the conversations that don't get scheduled that 
you have that build relationships very, very quickly, especially in proximity. So if you've got people, you've got team members, two of them, and they're reporting to a manager, one person goes in, every day the manager goes in, the other person's fully remote. Like the data will suggest that person, if there's a promotion, that person will, because of that. And the manager might think they're being objective, but really, if they've not been really clear around that proximity and not making time for that virtual person, yeah, 100% is flawed, like inherently flawed. And that's why education for managers and that is, is so important as well. You've spoken there briefly around the office experience and what the future of your office space is looking like. What else is the future looking like for you at Fisher Works? Oh, very cool. So I'm in the midst of preparing this sort of future of work EX paper strategy research, which is essentially kicking into hyperdrive. And the hyperdrive essentially is four key areas of hyperness. So you've got hyperpersonalization, hyperconnected, hyperhuman, and hyperhealthy. And the hyperpersonalization is we want our technology to work in such a way that no matter what role you work into or you walk into an organization, if you wanted to pivot to any other role that existed in our entire environment, you can. And you can see the skills to, that you need to level up in that role. You get the support to level up in the role and you get the learning, right learning at the right time, at the right pace. So you're constantly nudged and it's all based on how you want to shape and craft your career. When it comes to that hyperconnectedness, like we're building spaces and we're, we're building relationships and communities around how we can get the entire business connected and we call this unify we're leading we've got a big program we're running called unify across our entire business to bring people together who never would have met ever before so they can become better connected and then when it comes to the hyperhuman we want to make sure that you know that data analytics that process we're getting rid of the mundane using technology in a smart way so our people team can way more people orientated and spend more time invested in getting to know the human it's so nice when you have that comfort relationship and you can just constantly touch base. And then the final piece around being hyper healthy is everything. Right? We're just redesigning our value proposition and it's going to be all around how we can be the organization where you become the healthiest version of yourself. And when we don't just stop at you, like we stop, we continue into your family, your loved ones. And where that looks like for you, we want, we, like we said, I'll go back to the first thing I said, work is the thing you do most after sleep. And if we can be the business where you are the healthiest version of yourself, physically, mentally, psychologically, your soul, your financial health, all of that ties into itself. We can help you live longer, right? That's insane to think about. And it's very ambitious. But why the hell not? Organizations need to start being more ambitious rather than just, we're here to be employer of choice, blah. And all of that generic mumbo joke is like, have a purpose, have a, have a cause. You're not here very long, like fight for something. And that's what we're going to try and do. So work for Fisher Whack, live longer, mic drop. Mic drop. 100%. Isn't that what workplaces should do? They should help you live longer, not shorter. Absolutely. On that note, Nick, thank you so much for sharing all of that great stuff. And it's so exciting to hear about what your future plans are and how you're really leading the way for better employee experience. So thank you for sharing. Thanks, Helen. Thanks for having me on to ramble at you. Thank you for <laughs> This podcast is powered by Thrive. We're a complete learning and skills platform creating modern learning solutions for modern businesses globally. Check us out.